Hey, my name is Cindra Kampoff, and I'm a small town Minnesota gal, Minnesota nice as we like to say it, who followed her big dreams. I spent the last four years working as a mental coach for the Minnesota Vikings, working one-on-one -on -one with the players. I wrote a best-selling book about the mindset of the world's best, and I'm a keynote speaker and national leader in the field of sport and performance psychology. And I am obsessed with showing you exactly how to develop the mindset of the world's best so you can accomplish all your goals and dreams. So I'm over here following my big dreams and I'm here to inspire you and practically show you how to do the same. And you know, when I'm not working, you'll find me playing Miss Pac-Man. Yes, the 1980s game, Miss Pac-Man. So take your notepad out, buckle up, and let's go. This is the high performance mindset. Educobi said, pressure comes from within and must be mastered from within. Sarah Johnson said, pressure isn't supposed to break us. It is designed to make us. And the guests I have on the podcast today, Len Zukowski and Dan Peterson write, the playmaker on any team makes the right decision at the right time almost every time. Welcome to the High Performance Mindset Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Sindra Kampoff, and I am grateful that you are here. If you know that mindset is essential to your success, then you are in the right place. And today on the podcast, we have renowned sports psychologist, Len Zukowski, and mental performance consultant, Dan Peterson, on to provide a deep dive on the cognitive demands of sport and performance. Len and Dan recently released their new book, The Playmaker's Decision, and they also wrote a previous book, The Playmaker's Advantage. As a professor, researcher, and consultant for almost four decades at Boston University, Len pioneered sports psychology by bringing cognitive neuroscience and sport performance together as an interdisciplinary science. He has consulted with teams in the NBA, NHL, NFL, NLB, and Olympic sport organizations around the world. And he is a former president and fellow of the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. Dan Peterson is an author, speaker, and consultant. He specializes at the intersection of neuroscience and sport performance. And Dan has combined 25 years of technology management experience with a second life as a sports dad and coach to explore how athletes make decisions. And in this podcast, Len, Dan, and I talk about what are the attributes of a playmaker and how you can be a playmaker in any profession or field that you are in. We talk about the best way to move forward after a mental mistake, how to make a clutch play or be clutch when you really want to, we talk about the athlete decision-making model and how we can use this concept to improve our own performance and how we can improve our decision-making skills in moments of pressure. To find the full show notes and description, you can head over to syndracampoff.com slash 426 for episode 426, where you can get the description and a full transcript of the interview. And if you haven't already, join us over at the High Performance Mindset community over on Facebook, where we're posting these episodes live as they happen. You can make comments there, interact with us as we are live on these episodes, as well as ask us any questions. So again, you can head over to High Performance Mindset Community on Facebook and join us there. You can also find the link by scrolling down on the episode podcast notes. For example, if you are listening on an iPhone, open up the notes and you can find the link to the High Performance Mindset Community on Facebook. Without further ado, let's bring on Len and Dan. Dan and Len, thank you so much for joining us here on the High Performance Mindset Podcast. How's your afternoon going? It's going great, Sandra. Thanks for inviting us. 
Yes, uh, I'm looking forward to this, Sandra. I enjoyed listening to some of your podcasts and some of the work that you've done. So quite familiar what you're into, and I hope that Dan and I can contribute a little something different. And um, yes, we'll go. Okay, excellent. Well, I uh, read your last book, The Playmaker's Decisions, and then you have another book that came before that in 2018, The Playmaker's Advantage. So I thought what we could start is let's just uh, really define what you think a playmaker is. Sure, I'll go first and then, uh, and then Len can follow up. Um, so you're right. I mean, when we set out to write the first book back in 2018, um, first of all, I'm a, I'm a sports dad. I'm, I'm not an academic. I'm not a PhD. Um, I work in, uh, in the neuroscience world now in the, in, as a project manager, but nothing to do like you do, Cinder, or like Len did for, for almost 40 years at Boston University. And so, but I was a sports dad with three sons who, and I loved coaching them up to a certain point till my uh, uh, expertise was, was gone. And then uh, just watching them. And I was always amazed with what they did, but I always saw those one or two kids out on the field who just seem to have something extra. They just, mm. their vision on the field, the passes that they saw that nobody else did, the decisions they made very quickly. And of course, being a fan of all sports, you know, you watch any fast moving team sport and there's those same players out there that just rise above the rest. And, and the common term across many different sports is playmaker. You know, they just make mm -hmm. plays. And yeah. so when Len and I sat down to write this book, it was kind of like, we wanted to connect with, with parents and coaches. And as Len will say, he doesn't want to write another textbook. And mm -hmm. so we picked that term as a way to kind of talk about the brain and talk about an athlete's brain and all the stuff that must be going on in an athlete's brain when they're out on the field, the, the ice, mm -hmm. the court. And so we thought, no, playmaker seems like a good term. So I think we'll go with that. And I think it's something that yeah. others can identify with. And I like playmaker because it makes me think of a person that can actually make the plays in clutch situations. And today, you know, you might think of playmaker just in sports, but you can be a playmaker in life as well. Absolutely. Yeah, mm -hmm. we wrote about them. In fact, when I talked about Albert Bandura's great work at Stanford, who I got to know quite well, you know, I, I call them the playmaker in the field of psychology. You know, yeah. <laughs> wrote right. about that in that first book. But uh, if I could just expand upon uh, what Dan was just saying, Sindra, is that that kind of late in my career at, at BU, and, as, and I was doing, moving more into the, into the elite pro sports world and, and bringing sports science in there, I I realized that one thing that in our field of psychology, we weren't teaching a lot to our students mm -hmm. is the whole area of decision-making, kind of the whole idea of how athletes decide, these playmakers, what is it about them? And uh, I got into that pretty late and Dan was thinking along the same lines and that's how I kind of why we partnered. But you know, Dan also has this great story where he talks about hearing Mike Sullivan, the coach of he wasn't coaching the Pittsburgh Penguins then, but he was giving a seminar to a lot of aspiring hockey coaches. And he was just talking about the brain and, and future coaches have to understand how the brain works and how people mm. learn in order to be an effective coach. And so uh, it turns out that I had Mike as a student at, at BU and he 
asked in what capacity he could help with the book. And of course, we got him to write the forward. That was a great start. But he says, you know, the best playmaker I know in the world of hockey today is a guy called Sidney Crosby. You've got to come to Pittsburgh and spend some time with him. So I did. Oh, wow. And, you know what? You know, so it was kind of a wonderful experience. And have, have Sid talk to us about like how, and he knew this was very important and he had that skill set that he could see the ice better than most players and he could make quick and accurate decisions. And that's why he is what he was uh, or is. And so we then just kind of followed other athletes and other sports and we're basically getting very similar answers, you know, that, that, yeah, they recognized that they had that wonderful skill set. And I felt that, gosh, we've, we've got to promote that concept to teach other people in, in our field to, to get into better understanding uh, the, the, the cognitive field. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, and when I look at your book, you defined you know, playmaker as one that can take over the game with superior athlete cognition. And I know cognition is part of you know, your decision-making. Maybe let's define what you mean by cognition and then we can dive into decision-making. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, when we picked out the first book and what we wanted to talk about, it was more just the broad landscape of, of everything out there that's going on in the, in the athlete's brain. And it's really become, as, as Len said, more and more coaches are interested in learning about the brain. Players mm-hmm. and athletes are learning about their brain. You know, us as adults in our work life, we're learning how to use our, our brain and make decisions. Um, and one of the things is just, it, it want, we wanted to make it more commonplace to talk about it, to give parents and coaches and athletes kind of this common vocabulary that okay. they could talk about these things rather than buried into some neurons and synapses and, and stuff like that. So, uh, we, you know, there's a lot of different models out there. Len and I just thought about it for a while and said, you know, this term athlete cognition, it, it sounds um, like something we could explain easily and people could grasp. So we broke that into basically three major uh, uh, functions as a player who's out on the field, goes through thousands of times a game, think about a soccer midfielder or a hockey center, and thousands of times of games, they have to go through this loop. And we call it the athlete cognition cycle. And it's okay. basically search, decide, and execute. And it's pretty simple to talk about, but when we divide that out, that's kind of how we divided out the first book is into those major sections, search being obviously perception, vision, uh, sensory input, uh, decide, obviously, just like it sounds that black box in the middle where they're actually going to make a decision of what they're going to do next, move, pass, shoot, do something, and then execute, obviously all the skill, technical skill training that they need to carry off those and they all play on each other. You can't make great decisions if you're not perceiving all the opportunities. You can't you know, execute the right thing if you made a poor decision, et cetera. So it's a circle that we kept coming around and around it again. And we, we kind of formed the first book around that. Yeah, and I think, Cassandra, that other people have kind of grabbed onto that too. And I know they're applying it. I, we had at, at our uh, uh, biometrics conference last week, Adam Beaven from uh, Hoffenheim in, in Germany and uh, talking about how they're using technology to, to, to teach uh, mostly soccer players, but they've got hockey and they've got basketball, teach them to, to scan, search for cues on, on, uh, on the surface that they're playing, the game they're playing. 
and and then and then making that decision and then executing it flawlessly. And we also had uh, Kevin uh, McGraskin from uh, who was an elite uh, soccer coach from Scotland who talked about those same concepts. Uh, mm -hmm. But rather than using technology, how do we, you know, create uh, practices on the on the yeah. on the pitch in tight areas so we can teach them to to scan better and look for cues and then make quick decisions and then flawlessly execute. Don't mess up. And that holds true in, in, in any area uh, that, uh, whether it's a surgeon or a pilot or a police officer, it's the same stuff happens. You're searching for cues and then you decide mm -hmm. and then you execute. I was just gonna say, going back to, to Mike Sullivan and one of the things that was so interesting is that a, a coach at his level, two-time Stanley Cup winner, uh, playing or coaching at the highest level, played the game for years and years in the NHL. And that's one of the things that he brought out when he, he wrote the foreword for the first book. And I'll just quick short excerpt here. But he was saying when I was playing in college in the late 80s at Boston University, uh, taking lens classes, uh, the new frontier was in physical fitness and training. That's when players started to get into the weight room, work on strength and conditioning, develop power in the neuromuscular system. That was cutting edge back then. Now we have pretty good understanding of how to train athletes physiologically. The next frontier is how mm -hmm. to get players to better understand anticipation skills, recognition skills, decision-making, how to deal with the high stakes environments, how to handle pressure. And he said, in my generation, there's always been an assumption around the rinks that, quote, hockey sense is something that you're born with. You either have it or you don't, mm. but you can't teach it. But the reality is that hockey sense or sports sense is not unlike learning how to skate or learning how to stick handle. The new capability is, is what we call, and that's kind of where we came up with the playmaker's advantage. It's something they have that hopefully others can understand and develop those certain, those certain parts of their game. Excellent. So, you know, when I think about search, decide and execute and sometimes how quickly that we go through those three processes, uh, what would you say to an executive, to an athlete, to a team, you know, anyone who wants to improve their decision making skills? I think it's, you know, the, the most important thing to start with is that so often these individuals haven't really thought too much about this. And if it just heightens yeah. awareness about the, let's think about how important decisions are in the work that you do. Mm -hmm. uh, and we heighten one's awareness of how we look for the important cues to help us make the best possible decisions and then learn to make them quickly or, and accurately. And then whatever you're doing, execute that flawlessly. And that's the thing that you have to you know, deliberately practice as well. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's heightening that awareness initially is the most important first step, Indra. Great. Dan, do you have anything to add to that? You know, I, I was just thinking about, um, we had a conversation in the first book with Dr. Uh, Anders Erickson from Florida State. Yeah. And unfortunately, he passed away in the last year. But, you know, his whole research um, for years and years was on deliberate practice. And that was the message he tried to get across. Uh, you know, what grew out of that with Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers is the 10,000 hours, et cetera. But when we talked to Dr. Erickson for our first book two years ago, and he was always, you know, saying that the message is about deliberate practice and whether that's sports, whether that's music, whether that's 
business skills, whatever you want to talk about, whatever you want to become an expert in, um, that you have to go through this process of deliberate practice. You have to work on the weaknesses mm -hmm. and get better at them. And so that, I think that applies to all walks of life. And uh, it's something that we spent some time on uh, in the first book. So one of the things that I remember reading in your book was this idea of mental mistakes. Um, you know, and I'm thinking in sport, it could be a penalty or a false start. And I think even you said that, you know, the top four penalties were mental mistakes. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I think that's what you reported. So give us a sense of how or what gets in the way of decision-making and how do these mental mental mistakes get in the way of decision-making and just tell us a little bit about how that relates to what we've talked about so far. Yeah, well, as we went into, um, so the first book came, as you said, came out in 2018 mm -hmm. and we had a lot of great feedback from that and uh, mostly from coaches and parents and they liked everything we had it there at a high level, but okay. they all said, you know, the thing that if you wanted to solve anything for us <laughs> as coaches or parents, dive deep into that middle, that decide box, that black box of when they're actually taking in the input and making decisions. And because that's a lot of the places where it goes wrong, you know, and that's what causes the mental mistakes. They know better than to jump offside. They know better than to grab onto someone for holding, but yet they do it. And still, so that they could understand how they, you know, why they make those mistakes. Um, one of the contacts uh, Len had was down in Australia in the Australian Football League, John Longmire, who's a well-respected head coach of the Sydney Swans down there. And we talked to him, Len talked to him and interviewed him for the first book. And it was interesting. I have a quote here from him. He said, you know, athletes come to us having mastered most of the technical demands of the game, but without question, the biggest challenge our coaches face is teaching our players how to make quick and accurate decisions on the field. And so that's where we spent a lot of the time in this latest book is talking about the decisions. And one of the areas uh, that I'll just jump into is just like we had the athlete cognition model at a high level, search, decide, execute in the first book. In this one, when we drill down to decision-making, uh, we developed something called the athlete decision model, because those are the kind of questions we wanted to answer. Why do some players, and that's kind of the, uh, the subtitle of our book, some players make clutch plays, some pay, uh, players make mental mistakes. What's the difference? Why are they doing that? So we kind yeah. of broke that down into a, a new model we call the athlete decision model. Yeah, and I remember, I think the five, six components maybe were time, tactics, rules, attention, cognition, and emotion. Do I got that right? That's very good. Very All good. right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I did my homework. <laughs> so give us a sense of, you know, either Dan or Len, um, the athlete decision-making model and, you know, how maybe we could use that to make better decisions. I'll let Dan take take that on, but there's one other thing I wanted to mention before we leave that uh, area uh, we were just talking about is sometimes overthinking uh, is is where the mistakes are made too, and we talked a little yeah. about that in the first book too on on, uh, on on choking behavior, which I don't like that term because it's it, yeah. you know it, it's failure to perform in the clutch, but sometimes it's it, 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 I'm thinking of baseball for example, you know. There's, the batter strikes out and, and they say, wait, we choke. No, it was, a, it was a perfect pitch. It was an unhittable pitch. 
and so we don't talk too much about that. So, so it's just, you know, somebody just outperformed the other person on these one-on-one -on -one situations. So Dan, I'll let you talk about the rest of the, the model. Yeah. Thanks, Len. I, and the thing is, you know, there's a lot of, and we'll talk, I think a little bit about the decision-making theory um, that's out there. But one of the things we pulled from all of those is, you know, obviously making decisions in a time-constrained uh, environment and in a sports environment is a lot different than, you know, picking what car to buy or what job to take, et cetera, where you have a lot of time to think about and weigh the options. So as you mentioned, those six areas that we identified, three of those are internal factors, three of them are external factors. The internal factors we labeled traits or things that yeah. come naturally to an athlete. And one of those is attention, how well they pay, can pay attention to the right cues out on the field, out on the court. And that's a lot of the perception research that's out there and how they take in that sensory information. Um, the cognition part is really a little bit of what you're born with in terms of information processing speed and working memory. There's been quite a few studies that show that those two variables uh, across athletes really determine a lot of you know, expert versus novices of how well they can process that, that information. And then of course, um, emotion. <laughs> uh, yeah. Put a, a quote in there from Phil Knight, founder of Nike saying, sports is like rock and roll. Both are dominant cultural forces, both speak in international language and both are all about emotions. And whether you've played sports or you've watched sports, it's all about emotion, but emotion mm -hmm. can get the best of someone and can cause some of those mental mistakes or can cause someone to, to rise to the occasion and make a clutch play. For the yeah. external factors, you know, we really kind of thought about what really has an effect uh, that is maybe a little bit out of the player's control, the athlete's control, or heck, in daily life out of our control. But one of the things, obviously, in sport, like we talked about, is, is time. So whether that's time on the clock, 24-second clock, whatever it is, or time of your opponent coming at you, you have the ball, you have the puck, and in a half a second, you have to decide what you're going to do or you're going you're gonna to lose the ball. Um, the other one is rules of the game, like we talked about, jumping off sides, holding, et cetera. Players, young players at some point in their development, they learn the rules, they're taught the rules, they get into organized sport and they have officials who will, you know, enforce the rules on them. But somehow in their decision-making, they have to overlay subconsciously the rules. So they know this is what I can and can't do. Um, sometimes they make conscious decisions to break the rules. Sometimes they make emotional decisions to break the rules. And sometimes they just jump offside and they just weren't yeah. paying attention. Sure. Um, and then the last one is tactics. So coaches spend all this time showing game film, uh, drawing up strategies and tactics for the next opponent. And they, they dump all of this on their athletes and they're like, here's how we're gonna play the game uh, against this opponent. And so again, especially for developing athletes, they have to take that out into the field and under the pressure of time and under the pressure of the rules and the emotion of the game and all of that, they have to say, oh, that's right. Coach wanted me to do this, not that. I can pass here, but not there. This is how we're supposed to bring the ball up the field, et cetera. And so those are the three things that kind of weigh down on the decision-making of athletes. And then uh, based on their internal makeup of their traits, it kind of all combines on how well they'll do with the decision-making. 
That's really helpful. So the traits include attention, cognition, emotions, and the constraints would be time, tactics, and rules. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about emotions because I, I find that really interesting. And I'm sh- I know that the people who are listening also will. Tell us a bit about what type of emotions you think help or enhance decision-making. Well, I, I just say that it's, it's uh, the best book I've read on is quite recent, a recent one by uh, uh, Dr. Sari Evans from New Zealand, who is a psychiatrist, but he, he worked with the All Blacks rugby team and he wrote a book uh, uh, on this whole topic of uh, finding balance and controlling your emotions. That, that balance you need between the sympathetic nervous system, which energizes you and the parasympathetic that kind of slows you down. So it's uh, emotions can be very healthy uh, in, in a lot of sports, but they can, if, if you get overly emotional, uh, it can mm-hmm. hinder your performance. And then there's certain emotions like fear, you just don't want to have. So it's yeah. you know, incumbent upon us to kind of help athletes and help coaches uh, teach athletes uh, to, to control those emotions, particularly the negative emotions, the positive ones. Yeah, I think we, we have to encourage that. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. Um, yeah, and I was just thinking about helping people find kind of the ideal emotions that they want to feel uh, to play well. But I was curious how that makes, you know, impacts decision making. I think there was something about aggression in your book. And uh, what, you know, do either of you have any thoughts on that, how that helps or hinders um, decision making? Yeah, I, I was uh, thinking about one of the, um, the theories that's out there that, that we were mentioning in that, that chapter on emotions. And it's by uh, Dr. Michael Eisneck and uh, Dr. Mark Wilson. And it's uh, called the intentional control theory. And by itself, that's its own theory. But then they took that and applied it to sports um, rather than just across a wide um, variety of domains. And I'm looking here at one of the, uh, the quotes from how they described how they approach to sports. And they said, quote, sports provides almost a perfect environment for examining performance under pressure. Skills that have been honed and perfected during practice can break down just when the need to execute them is greatest. And then in studying that, they found that, you know, any factor or combination of factors that increase the importance of performing well can cause problems with decision-making. The proposed mechanism by which pressure exerts its effect on skilled performance is via increased anxiety and emotional response to threat comprising cognitive worry and physical physiological arousal. And I was like, yeah, cognitive worry and physiological arousal. You think about young athletes out there and their desire to please their teammates, to please their coach, to please their parents who are on the sidelines. If it's a high school game to look good in front of their friends. And obviously the physiological arousal, you know, the emotions of the game of, and there's been studies of, you know, if you uh, basketball player misses three shots, you know, what typically do they do next? If a uh, one team commits X number of penalties, are they likely to come back from that or not? And so there's been a lot more attention spent to understanding what happens if something goes wrong. I, our our uh, proposal is that the playmaker can come back from that a lot better and can control that, those, those emotions and make the best next decision versus someone who's not as experienced uh, will be a lot more affected by those emotions. 
Senator, yeah. what I like about Evan's book is that he really simplified it for players and coaches, and he called it the red state and the blue state. And uh, everybody great. had this common language, you know, you're in the red, you know, which means that's not good. <laughs> Get into that blue state, you know, and, and hopefully they've learned how to, to move from the red state into the blue state. So it's a very simple concept, but rather powerful. And I really liked it. And because and, emotions for sure have, uh, have an impact on high pressure performance. That's great, Len. What was the name of the book? Performing Under Pressure. I think it just oh, came perfect. out in the last year, Sindra. And so yeah. your listeners may want to look for it on Amazon, Performing Under Pressure. And I like it. it. It's, uh, you know, he's not, he's not the best writer in the world, but I like the way he conceptualized it. It kept it as simple as possible. Right. And I think we need simple things to be able yes. to actually implement, right? And if it's like, you know, and if we can say that on the field or on the court, you know, hey, get to your blue state or red state that I, 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 I when I connect back to emotions, I think of red as like anger and frustration, yep. Yep. you know, whereas blue is like calm and confidence, you know. That's right. That's exactly mm -hmm. it. Yeah. The other mm -hmm. thing I want to mention uh, so we don't forget about it is a, one of my colleagues in Australia, Dr. Eugene Aidman, has put together a, a kind of an international task force to study this cognitive fitness. So for your audience who's really interested in this rather new area, cognition and performances, just kind of follow that literature because it's going to, I think, explode in the next couple of years where uh, Dr. Aidman really wants to kind of have a, a common language about what are the factors that make up cognitive fitness, how do we measure it, and then how do we train it? And I think that's gonna have a huge impact, not only in sport, but you know, it, it's across disciplines into the military and, and uh, tactical decision-making and special forces and police policing and, and certainly with surgeons and other high uh -huh. pilots, other high performers. Well, thanks for the heads up on that. And that was kind of connecting to my next question. We've talked, a, a, you know, about emotion and some about cognition. Is there anything within the, the trait part, you know, you said attention, cognition, and emotion, Dan, is there anything that we haven't talked about related to decision-making that you've, you think would be important for the listeners to better understand? I think there's... Um... One of the distinctions we drew in, in both books, but more in the second book, is, you know, there's a lot of, as you know, Cinder, there's a lot of decision theory out there developed by, by folks like Len, um, Dr. Daniel Kahneman, Dr. Mm -hmm. Gary Klein. And we really kind of, we tried to draw from those examples out there to say, how does this apply to sports? And we were lucky enough to talk to Dr. Klein for our second book. And the difference there is, you know, a lot of people know uh, Dr. Kahneman and his research partner, Amos Tversky from um, Thinking Fast and Slow, the very popular book from several years ago, where they introduced, you know, the system one and system two thinking. System one is, you know, do things automatically. You know, if you're an experienced basketball player, you don't think about dribbling the ball, you just do it. Um, versus system two, where you're actually having to compute and figure out some things. And that's where more of the decision-making comes in. But the, the goal is to have all this tacit knowledge built up to see so many patterns over years of playing games. You're going to see thousands and thousands of game scenarios and patterns. 
And those start to add up and build a tacit knowledge database in your brain that you subconsciously draw from when you're presented with a new situation. And so Dr. Kahneman and, and, and Dr. Tversky focused more on kind of what goes wrong with decision-making, um, heuristics, biases, how we're influenced by these things when we're trying to make the right decision. Dr. Klein, on the other hand, he's spent his whole career outside of universities and studying uh, decision makers in the wild, if you will. So uh, okay. he's, he's studied firefighters, uh, medical mm. personnel, first responders, military, and really looking at, instead of trying to bottom or come from a top-down theory of decision-making, let's watch these decision-makers making decisions under pressure, under time, under stress, under emotions, and then interview them and ask them how they do it. And what he found is, no, they don't go through a laundry list of the best options. You know, Tom Brady, when he drops back, he doesn't, yeah, he goes through his reads, but he doesn't spend a lot of time creating new options, et cetera. He finds the option that's going to work the best. He does a little mini simulation in his brain that takes a half a second, and then he makes a decision and go with it. And it's kind of a take the first um, theory that's out there. And so what Dr. Klein said is it's unfortunate that we don't teach a lot of that uh, when kids are young, especially in sports. Um, I have a quote here from him that we included in the book. I, he, this is Dr. Klein. I think it's too bad when the training in youth sports is about not making mistakes. It is very procedural. Sure. It's getting these drills down. Part of the assumption is once you get all the basics down, at some point later in your career, you can learn about the decision-making part. But now you have all kinds of negative transfer to overcome that you have to overcome the way you've been taught to do it. The decision-making should be there from the very start. That's the way of building mm -hmm. adaptive models rather than trying to graft it on later. And, you know, he talks about kids become paralyzed because they're afraid of making mistakes and you can see the tension. So I think that's one of the biggest things for, for parents and coaches to understand. And that's why, you know, we talk about in the book about as much as you want to, and I was one of those parents, uh, don't coach your kids from the sidelines during a game. Don't, even if you have all the best intentions, don't, you know, remote control them and tell them where to pass it and what to do and all of that, because they're so busy trying to make the right decision out there that you're just destroying the, any automaticity they have out there. Yeah, I think that's powerful, uh, Dan, especially the quote by, by Gary Klein. And um, I see it, you know, I have two boys, they're 11 and 13 right now. And uh, we, we talk about mistakes in our home, right? And that mistakes are okay, but there's just all these messages that they shouldn't make mistakes, you know? How are right. they gonna learn without making the mistakes? And, you know, they, they don't wanna make a mistake either. Um, you know, Glenn, I think about just your, uh, how many you know, different types of populations you've worked with and the incredible work that you've done within this field. Give us a sense of, you know, you could choose sport or you could choose a different population that you've worked with. You know, give us a sense of how what we've talked about today applies and applies to the real world. How have you used what we've talked about in, you know, different populations? Well, again, my passion was always around sport, but I knew it was quite generalizable. Uh, these concepts. And, and again, it was late in my career where I finally got smart and figured out that we're really missing out on this important dimension of, of, of thinking and making good decisions. Yes. And we just don't teach that. 
and yeah. we don't understand it all that well. But I think uh, you know people like you with the, uh, your communication systems are going to hopefully have an impact. But I've also did similar things in teaching self-regulation skills to to surgeons. Uh, yes. And we ran several projects with, with surgeons uh, at major universities, just uh, helping them understand how to control what we talked about earlier, their emotions. Because, you know, it's, it's not winning and losing a game. You know, it's winning. It's perhaps losing a patient on, in surgery that if you just can't afford to make a mistake. Uh, but so it's learning how to control your emotions in those high pressure situations. So I really enjoyed working with that population, people in medicine. And, uh, uh, and I just want to emphasize the concepts are the same. It's just a different environment in which they're working. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking about. I think I, I read um, something about how you're working with surgeons. So give us a sense of just how you might, you know, briefly, <laughs> I know you can't go into detail, but help a surgeon control their emotions. Because I think, gosh, if it, you know, we can all relate to that. Maybe we're not doing surgery, but there are definitely times where we're all in pressure situations and being able to control our emotions is equally uh, important, at least to us in that moment. Well, the way I tried to get that message across was to, to monitor their physiology, their psychophysiology when they were in, in, in the operating room, uh, get baseline measures of them prior to going in, uh, looking at their heart rate, their heart rate variability, EEG signals of GSR or electrodermal responses, uh, things that are really activated by their emotions. And if, you can, if they can look at their baseline measures and then watch themselves while they're performing and then feed it back to them and say, ah, now with this kind of information, I, I know this is important. And this is, this is how we self-regulate those emotions so that I am you know, uh, performing at my optimal ability uh, in, uh, in surgery. So, and, and I've done that a lot with athletes too. And, and, and of course that world is getting a lot better where we were able to get, have wearables, which not that many years ago, they didn't exist. But now these wearables provide, can provide athletes with incredible feedback about their physiology, and uh, which are by and large related to their, their thinking and their emotions, and they can better self-regulate those, those dimensions. Great, thank you for sharing that, Len. Uh, Dan and Len, as, as we wrap up, is there anything, like, I know we could talk you know hours about your book, yes. but is there anything, for sure that you wanted to make sure to cover that we haven't yet. What do you no, think, Len? You were very, very thorough on asking the, the important questions. And the only thing I'd like to leave you with is that I'm just even thankful that you're sharing this with your extensive audience. And hopefully what Dan and I have been writing about uh, and speaking about is, is we'll get more and more traction in, in the community. Yes. The, the, this notion of cognition and uh, uh, how to be better at what we do by thinking about thinking. Love it. Dan, do you have any final advice or comments for our listeners? No, I, I just had I, one quote that I've always loved. Uh, it's in the first book. Um, one of the gentlemen uh, in our first book, Dr. Istvan Balyi, he's a, a well-respected um, 
developed a lot of country long-term player development plans for Canada and other countries when they look at their Olympic sports, et cetera. And he always had this quote that I loved, and I think it wraps up a lot of what we've talked about. Uh, this is Dr. Bali. He says, I learned this from Jesuit priests in Ireland. If you want to teach Latin to Johnny, you have to know Latin, and obviously you have to know Johnny. So instead of Latin, if you want to teach any sport to Johnny, you have to know that sport, and you have to know Johnny. We know the sport very well, but we do not know Johnny or Jane from age six to 16. Superimposing adult programs on young developing athletes doesn't work. And so I think that's uh, for a parent, sports parents and for coaches of, of developing athletes, that's one thing to keep in mind is they're not adults. Uh, they're not many adults either. And so, uh, you know, you have to think about, as Mike Sullivan told us, you have to think about how their brain is processing this information you're giving them. Yeah, powerful. Thank you, Dan. So uh, Dan and Len's books are called The Playmaker's Advantage, How to Raise Your Mental Game to the Next Level. And then their more recent, The Playmaker's Decisions, The Science of Clutch Plays, Mental Mistakes and Athlete Cognition. So Dan or Len, can you tell us where we might get the books and um, where we can follow along with your work? Well, Dan's there... good at that. He's, he's, a, he's a business manager. Yeah. So Dan can give you input on that. Yeah. They're, they're, as they say, they're everywhere that you buy books. So um, nice. yeah, they're on Amazon, uh, Apple Books, um, Google Play, Barnes and Noble. Um, you can, or if they're not at your local bookstore, you can ask them to order them. Uh, so both of them are out there wherever you choose. Um and, you know, a lot of people buy them at Amazon, but some want to buy them at their local bookstore. So they're out there. The first one is also, both of them are in um, paperback and ebook format. And the first one also has an audio version and a hardcover version. Excellent. Well, thank you both for joining us. It was a pleasure to talk with you and to talk with you about your books and what you've been working so hard on the last several years. Well, thank you, Sandra. Pleasure talking with you and uh, feel free to share my contact information, my email, uh, particularly uh, with the audience if should they want to reach out to me. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Do you want to give that to us now, Len, just in case anybody wants to reach out? Yeah, it, it's a simple one. <laughs> Sport, S-P-O-R-T, at B-U, like Boston University, dot E-D-U. Perfect. That's an easy email. <laughs> <laughs> it's easier than spelling Zykowski. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you, Dan and Len. What a pleasure. Pleasure, Cinder. Way to go for finishing another episode of the High Performance Mindset. I'm giving you a virtual fist pump. Holy cow, did that go by way too fast for anyone else? If you want more, remember to subscribe and you can head over to Dr. Sindra for show notes and to join my exclusive community for high performers where you get access to videos about mindset each week. So again, you can head over to Dr. Sindra. That's D-R-C-I-N-D-R-A dot com. See you next week.